to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. With me today is a longtime friend, sometime co-host, uh, <laughs> a season past, um, yeah. and just an all-around one of my favorite people. Chris, thanks for being with us, man. It's good to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me on, man. Good to talk for those who, who might be newer to the podcast, Chris is professor, uh, pastor, priest, father, um, however you like to, to be called. Um, I just, it's funny. Call, I'm going to, I want to start calling you father Chris now, just because I can. Yeah. Um, and so we've, we've worked together. We've been faculty members at the same place before we've, uh, had a lot of time engaging. So I, I'm always glad to have Chris here. And Chris has recently released a book, particularly in the season that we're in, but especially going into a, a new season, called Being Transfigured, Linton Homilies. Um, and I just, you know, Chris, I wanted to start with this because we're just going to like dive right in. None yeah, of the pleasantries. Yeah. If people want to know more, they can go back to the thousand podcasts with you and me, right? Yeah, um, but let's just dive in, right? I, and I want to dive in actually first and ask Chris, for those who are listeners of this podcast who aren't from mainline, mainline denominations or they hear the word Lent and they just immediately go Catholic, right? Yeah. And that's what they think it is. Maybe we just start when you're talking about the fact that these are hom- Lenten homilies. Mm. What is Lent? And why should those in evangelical, Pentecostal, non-mainline spaces pay attention to Lent to begin with? Yeah, so it, it's a season of preparation for Holy Week. It, it's 40 days of, traditionally, 40 days of fasting and self-discipline, like yeah. readying yourself for, for the rigors of Good Friday and Holy Saturday and, and Easter Sunday. And liturgically, it fits between the seasons of, of Epiphany and Holy Week, the, the high holy days of Good Friday holy saturday and easter sunday and i mean it's it's been observed by the church east and west you know since ancient times very it's a, it's an old tradition and it, it there are different points of emphasis in different periods but pretty consistently the emphasis has been on repentance hmm. and focusing on readying your heart for the coming of the lord that is that that begins with Palm Sunday, right? So yeah. one way of describing it is, it you know we begin the year liturgically. We begin with Advent, looking forward to the coming of the Lord at Christmas. Then we have those twelve days of Christmas, and then we move into the season of Epiphany, in which the one who has been born among us is revealed to be the beloved. Re- revealed, you know, this is my son. Listen to him. Right. And, and in Epiphany, we attend to Christ at his baptism. And in the final Sunday of Epiphany, which is this coming Sunday, to Christ at his transfiguration. And again, you get that reiteration, this is my son, the beloved, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And 
And then we move into the season of Lent with Ash Wednesday, the day of recalling our mortality. Dust you are, to dust you shall return. And again, that prepares us for the word of the gospel that comes in Good Friday, the death of Jesus, Holy Saturday, his day in the grave, and then Easter, Easter Sunday. Yeah. So that's the liturgical shape of it. And to the second part of your question, why observe it? I think because there's wisdom in it. It teaches us. <laughs> right. You know, like there's a reason this this tradition has been around for as long as it's been around. And and the reason, and there's a reason that it it works across various traditional differences, right? Like East and West, Catholic and Protestant, Orthodox, low church, high church. And like it it there is a wisdom in it that I think does in fact help us prepare. Yeah. And you know. I think a lot of evangelical churches, and, and this isn't to say this is true of all evangelical or Pentecostal churches, but a lot of evangelical and Pentecostal don't necessarily go through the traditioned Ash Wednesday. Um, some do, but I think a lot don't, and really kind of talk about this in their in their church in their churches, right? So, what is the wisdom of Lent, right? What is this? 40, 40 day period of forgiveness of kind of this, I don't want to say living in death because that sounds really, you know, bad, well, but no, but I don't think it should. Yeah. Well, that's, right. Yeah. There's, there's several things. I think one, there's a, there's a, it's a way of coming attuned to the fact that our lives are seasonal. They're lived seasonally. And I, I think the the folks that I grew up around, they wanted to to kind of fix in seasons of life. They wanted it. You know, there's that line in the in in the Chronicles of Narnia that it was always winter, never Christmas. Hmm. You know, the, the the White Witch wanted to, right. to freeze everything. I think I think all of us are drawn or tempted, I should say, to do that kind of freezing, where we we find our favorite season of the year, spiritually speaking, and fix there. I, I remember being at one of the emerging church conferences years and years ago, and someone said, someone in the audience, I don't know who he was, he said, I, I, I appreciate all of this, this, this kind of recovery of talk about lament and appreciating the, nece the necessity of doubt. He's like, but it feels to me like we are developing a spirituality in which it's always Lent and never Pentecost. Hmm. And I think that was true of a lot of what was called the emerging church movement. But the part of the reason that that became necessary is that there were a lot of movements in which it was always Pentecost and never Lent. Right. <laughs> right. We were all we're trying to insist that our lives stabilize, settle at a particular spiritual moment. You know what? You know, in the Transfiguration story, Peter wanting to build three tabernacles at the pinnacle of that experience. I think that's a temptation for all of us all the time, except we don't offer to build tabernacles, which can move. We want to build temples right. that, that remain through all change. So I, I think one aspect of the wisdom is just it's it's a way of acknowledging that God's work in our lives take time, takes time. And life is always changing around us. We are always changing as life changes us and as we are being changed by God. So there's a God makes all things beautiful in his time. 
and there's a time for everything yeah and there's a time to rejoice in the joys of life there's a time to weep over the sorrows of death and a time to come aware again of the fact that we shall die and so i i think what you said is just to the point it is 40 days of living in this in the shadow of death yeah not, not in the sense of gloominess but in the sense of awareness of our mortality and preparing ourselves to to see the, the death of god it's god's mortality that ultimately has to hold our attention yeah I want to talk about God's mortality, but I also wanted to talk about it just because that phrase I know is going to be kind of odd for some. Yeah. But before I before we get there, you know, what you're saying is is really interesting. You know, in this kind of like in some traditions, it's always Pentecost and never Lent. In other traditions, there's this, it's always Lent and never Pentecost. And and it reminded me of a time I, I was having a conversation with a, a decently well-known worship pastor who we were having conversations and I, and I, we were talking about kind of the way that Christian worship music has kind of come and it's been crafted and it's become so um, singularly focused and it's kind of uh, reached for what it's trying to do maybe is the right way to say it. And we were talking about it and I just said, I, you know, I would love for, I would love for some really good lament some corporate lament because there's so much pain in our churches and so much pain in our communities, but we never get to express it at church because we have to come to a church that has to be, everything's happy and great and it's joyous and it's wonderful. And yet we never really get to actually cry together in our worship. Yeah. And the response that I got was, well, celebration is corporate and lament is personal. <laughs> and I got, I didn't know how to respond at that point. I didn't know what to say. To, you know, go look at the Book of Lamentations. Go, go look at yeah, at Scripture, Psalms, right. right, and see how much lament is a corporate thing. But I think that's almost to your point, right? Like we we as church traditions love to often attach to that one thing, whether it is Pentecost with us as Pentecostals, um, or Lent within the emerging church, or even Lent within some some areas of deconstructing churches that kind of sit in that phase for so long. Yeah, I, 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 that's right. And I, I think to be fair, I don't think that's a Christian or even an ecclesial problem. I think that is an American free church problem. Oh yeah. Like, right. This is not something Christians historically have struggled with. It's something we struggle with. <laughs> right. And we right. struggle with it in part because we live at a time in which we we've convinced ourselves or we've been convinced by our experience of things that we can tailor our tailor life to fit us right yeah I, I don't want this to be cliche but we do need to take seriously the ways in which so much of our experience is buffered by the technology we've invented to change how we experience life hmm. right so and i mean everything here from the clock to the microwave, to the air conditioning in our homes and cars, to the the highways, the zoning laws. I mean, there are all right. kinds of ways in which we've 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 made for good and bad reasons, and in, and to good and bad ends, we've made a world in which it's easy to start to think 
we can con- we can control what our experience is like mm. all the time, right? And our churches, and here I mean specifically these kind of middle class white American evangelical churches, we essentially sold out to doing whatever we needed to do to get as many people as possible to come. Yeah. And right. we figured out what's the one thing we do well. And then let, let's do that. Let's do that to the nth degree. And and if if there are things that need to be done by someone else, well, then they can do it. We do what we do, right? Right. It's a kind of, I don't want to be unfair because I, I don't, I think that the spirit remains creative and, and I think these our churches are filled with people who love God and are trying to find ways to work around that. And mostly we're victims of it more than we're masterminding some corruption of right. Christian tradition. I, I don't think there's any, it's not ill will that leads to these kinds of right. distortions. Yeah. But nonetheless, I think we we are, many of us are living in distorted versions of Christianity that that have lost touch with much of the wisdom that the spirit has shared with us over the centuries, over, over the millennia. And as a result, we're, we're fixated on one or two or three things that we do well, right? Whether, you know, whatever kind of church we imagine ourselves to be. I, I say this sometimes, and I may, we may have discussed this, you and I even in a past conversation, but I think a lot of what we call church is really just parachurch ministry. What we do in our churches really is a ministry, a ministry of teaching or a ministry of prayer or a ministry of worship or a ministry of outreach or a ministry of evangelism. Like our churches have essentially, again, not all of them, all kinds of exceptions to this, but in many cases, our churches have fallen into the trap of instead of being a church, which is giving a full witness to the whole gospel for the whole people of God. We've fallen into specializing in parachurch ministries. Yeah, right. The long-term consequences of that are enormous because discipleship, catechesis, deep formation cannot happen. Right. I I really think it's important that we kind of maybe just I reiterate here that statement you said, right? Like oftentimes that model that we really got to get back to your book and what we're talking about, but that model of the kind of the church is more of we're victims of that model, especially in America, than we are the perpetrators. I mean, we're both and, right? Um, But in because it would be the, this is the way I I often talk about the difference between a cynic and a skeptic of the church. Mm. It's a cynic that looks at that and says, no, no, they're the perpetrators using it for their own purposes, growth. And it's the skeptic who might step back and say, well, I think I think they're being used by it because that's how they're told to do it. And that's how it works. And that's how people show up. And so they just kind of sit inside this structure and it's, there can be good that comes from it, even if itself is inherently not healthy and it is going to have long-term consequences, like you said, right? And it kind of separates the cynic who just goes, no, no, it's all bad. It's all terrible. It's all, they're just using it for their own gain, versus how there's something else kind of at play here, right? That we can be skeptically minded about. Yeah, and lots of things at play. I don't think it's as simple as our churches. And again, when I say our, I don't mean Christians in general. I mean, specifically the Christians you and I know and work with and grew up around. Right. that, That smaller circle of Christians. I mean, our lives are so entangled with jobs and with the kind of rhythms and pressures of everyday American life, 
that our, our churches for missional reasons try to match those rhythms yeah and there there was a certain kind of i mean you could see why people would think that's a good idea you know that we should have churches in which it's it's easy for people to fit it into the rest of their lives right i mean that, that that's a very missional instinct and i think much of that is right but the christian life is lived out in this tension of missional openness right hmm. and commitment to the way of jesus right which is this the the call to the life of turning the other cheek and going the extra mile and the the life of sharing in christ's sufferings the life of silence and prayer and study and we haven't we haven't done well generally speaking we haven't done well of holding all of that together in this kind of living dynamic play we we've right. we've essentially outsourced all of that deeper work so that we can focus on the work that we feel that we're good at doing and yeah I mean, that's been happening for a very long time. Most of the people who would be hearing this conversation, this is not their idea. Like, again, they're victims. <laughs> right, right. They didn't come up with it. So I don't want anybody to hear us mocking or no. castigating. It's just, it's a, it's a very, very difficult situation to be in. And it's a very difficult situation to be faithful to God and neighbor in. Yeah. Like, because the pressures of keeping the machine running, the ministry machine running are so great financial pressures primarily mm -hmm. but also the pressures of just societal cultural pressures to to have that stuff working right means yeah. that it's it's hard to find time for the soul work right the work of friendship the work of friendship with god the the work of of deep study and conversation and prayer that requires you know periods of silence and periods of repentance yeah yeah and that's i mean i think and and i don't want to we'll we'll kind of move on from here unless you've got something to follow up on what i'm about to say but just you know it, it's interesting as we see these numbers as we see the data that shows that church attendance is, is dropping to historical lows in in the u.s that we're going the you know what i learned uh, so much in, in undergrad, right. We're going the way of burnt over Europe, uh, that we're, that we're heading these ways in these directions, you know, how important it is that, that along that trajectory has been the loss of that transformation and deeper discipleship and deeper work, you know, the idea of spiritual friends, the idea of, of these deep, deep processes that, that are not that don't happen at an hour or two on a Sunday and don't how don't happen just by listening to someone else telling you what that means. Right. Um, it happens in moments of connectedness and being together. And like you said, silence and prayer. So, um, so we need to get back right to that kind of transformative work, that discipleship work that is not just having people say a salvation message and then start, uh, start volunteering at churches, right? Because that is good things, but again, they are kind of not the thing. No. Um, mortality of God, right? I, I said we'd get back to that, and then we're going to get into kind of what your homilies are kind of focused around, and then, you know, why you felt 
it was important to go. And then I also want to dive into, I'm going to throw a massive curveball after that and do a little bit of reflecting on the Asbury revival. Sure. Um, just because it's, it's become such a thing. I didn't even think about it until like two minutes ago. And I was like, why don't we just have a quick chat about it? But mortality of God for so many, that's going to sound kind of off and they're going to go, well, yes, Jesus, Jesus died. It was in his humanity that he died. And we actually are very tempted to, to fall into one of our ancient heresies that tries to split Jesus humanity from his divinity and, and tries to say, oh, well, yeah, he died because he was human, but really he was God. So he didn't die. And so that phrase mortality of God, I think sounds so foreign to so many people who have not really spent the time to study these things that, you know, granted it's really academics that spend the time to study these things. Right. So what do you mean by that? And go ahead. Yeah. Tragically. I mean, this is, this is another one of the dimensions of our problem is that for many, again, this is not true for all churches everywhere by any means. There are all kinds of wonderful exceptions to this, but in the circles that I've mainly, I've moved in mainly that kind of study not only hasn't happened, it's been mocked. Right. To have the kind of theological depth that I think faithful witness requires of us has been mocked as unnecessary. We were too busy doing the stuff of our ministry to give ourselves to that kind of study and that that kind of prayerful study. So the fact is, me me talking about God's mortality is, I mean, that's familiar language in the Christian tradition. It's only not familiar to us because we're not very Christianized. <laughs> I mean, when Bonifer came here in the in 1931, and he and he's talking mainly about the mainline churches in New York and Philly and the the Northeast, but he says like these preachers will preach about anything except for Jesus, and it's hard, he says, to even call what in america is called christianity christian hmm. like the theology here he says it's it's a it's a novel thing and it's yeah. a mashup of like american sentiments and american values biblical language and kind of half understood christian teachings and i think what he was describing then about the dominant form of american protestantism which was mainline protestantism is true now of may of dominant american conservative evangelicalism hmm. but it, I, I i i don't mean this in a mean-spirited way i'm not saying the people right. are damned to hell but i'm saying the gospel we preach the way that we talk about god the way that we read scripture is not recognizably christian really and it's we're our ignorance about the tradition is is really staggering and yeah i mean there's not my dad, for instance, who you know was raised as a Christian in Oklahoma, raised me and my sister, was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, he he calls me almost every week now, with with something at their church. They attend an Episcopal church now, and you know it's it's something like a line in the creed, or an observation of a of like the Epiphany this year. He called me on Epiphany Sunday. Like I'd never heard this word, huh? Right. The these kinds of, like almost every week he's having some realization about something that has ancient history, that has been present in the Christian tradition for from the jump, more or less. Yeah. And that he 
all of you know seven decades of living no sense of it in our churches at all right i remember when i, I mean, but he's become curious of it now right i mean because of me he's sensitized yeah. to that right yeah i can remember this is probably 15 years ago i was preaching at at a little pentecostal church and the 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 pastor's wife she was 80 something at the time her dad had been a pentecostal preacher and her dad's dad had been so she's i mean there's a lot of history right and i preached right. trinity it was trinity sunday and although they of course weren't observing the the calendar i preached about the trinity <laughs> and right. when i got done she came up to me with tears in her eyes and she said chris she's like i've never heard a message about what it means for god to be trinity she's like i've heard that term here and there but i've never huh. heard it in a way that touched my heart i've never heard a sermon about it i've never heard a song about it i've never heard a testimony about it like it's never happened within the life of the church's worship yeah and i mean that should take our breath away because what that means is in our in many of our churches we've never talked about god in the way that christian tradition and scripture does yeah we've just assumed that people know all that stuff and i, I think what happened and i think again this is a very I'm limiting the, I want to make sure people hear me. Like I'm talking about the scope of the churches we know. This is not true outside of those circles, but in the in the churches that we know, like I think for a very, very long time, we just assumed the more important something is, the less we have to worry about it. Huh. Yeah. Because other people will take care of that. It's just in the air, or they'll get that, you know, at school, or they'll get that when they go to Bible school. Like the really basic stuff, the most important stuff is not ours to worry about. We can go on to the other things. Right. Right. I, I remember I was at a, a camp meeting service and this, this guy, it's just, it's stunning. It's going to sound like I'm misrepresenting. I, I, I'm not. He said, he said, I used to be a Methodist pastor before, before I had my experience with the Holy Spirit. And he said, and when I was a Methodist pastor, I preached about faith, hope, and love. But now that I have the Holy Spirit, I preach about miracles and angels. Huh. He meant that what? as yeah. a sign of growth, as a sign of maturity. I'm dead serious. I'm dead I'm serious. So he meant that, that as a statement. sign of, you know, I've really outgrown the stuff that those Methodists are worried about, faith, hope, and love. I've, I've arrived at miracles and angels. And it, yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, he hopefully is an outlier. But I think he's put, pointing at something that's true of a lot of our churches. Like we are specializing in stuff and have been for generations now. That's just not at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And we've lost yeah. that. So specifically about God's mortality, you know, this is Chalcedonian, right? The insistence that if Jesus is one person in two natures and those two natures commune without mixture, without confusion, it's true that, of course, the only way for him to die is to die humanly. God doesn't die by nature. Right. But he personally is God, and what he did is die. Yeah. He died. Now, how he died, he died because he assumed humanity in order to die. But he died. So it's true that God died. Because when right. we talk about God, we're talking about the person, Jesus. This, this one 
this one died. The son of the father, the son of Mary, he died. And then we can make the everything that he assumes in his human nature is his. So we can talk not only about God's mortality, but God's humanity. Yeah. We can talk about God's knowledge. We can talk about God's feelings, God's memories, God's body. And again, scripture is filled with this. And Christian tradition is filled with this. It's only unusual to us because we're not used to basic Christian teaching. Yeah, and, and I love to kind of go back to that Methodist preacher, right? Like I, I find, and and even your your father, right? I find that often, and maybe this is my own personal experience, but I've also just been around enough students, um, younger students, right? Millennials and Gen Z and that because of this lack of those deeper things, even even to say faith, hope, and love, that once we actually start to kind of explore them, there's such a deep well that that if given the kind of like the ripeness of um, helping people till that soil, they become so fascinated with with the tradition and what this all means because there's something more to it than just those um than just what you said right what's 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 given to us now because we don't have to worry about those things we've already we've already discussed them to death so you know and i think for me it's one of the reasons why my whole dissertation is on faith yeah that's right? exactly right yeah because it's it's this this my it's own so basic nobody ever talked about it i was 12 years old thinking what do you mean by faith and relationship with jesus mm. And and never got a real clear answer in all, even through multiple degrees and stuff. No one ever said, "Here's what what that really means." And to to spend the oh way too long uh, writing a dissertation on that kind of idea, what is this faith as relationality? Was my attempt to go there was something that I never got here that is really deep and beautiful, mm-hmm. and. And there's something here. And I think when we talk about your your Linton, Linton homilies, I think for so many who are kind of wanting to engage with this kind of tradition of the church, recognizing that this thing called Lent helps, helps kind of us get into these ideas and these topics that have been for so long just kind of assumed, right? So being there, what you know, first, why did you want to write this text? And then, you know, and these are homilies, right? So these are, these are teachings. So, you know, what, maybe it was compiling them. What made you kind of feel like this was something that would be helpful to that group of the church that we keep talking about that has often forgotten this area? Yeah, it started several years ago, 2021. I had to do... I was preaching the last Sunday of Epiphany. I was preaching Palm Sunday. And I was also preaching a couple of Sundays during Lent. And the the idea occurred to me, I should just thematically connect them. And so I did. And then I ended up writing a few essays about them, just kind of loosely holding them together. And then this year, earlier this year, Brad Jerzak urged me to, to kind of gather all those up rework them where i needed to rework them and and publish them as as a set right and and so he i took his advice and i did it 
And so the book, there are seven sermons, essentially. The first one is the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is reflecting on the Transfiguration. And then the Sundays of Lent culminating in Palm Sunday as the that moment in which Christ's arrival begins, like the move toward the cross is actually inaugurated there. And what I'm trying to show there is that this season of Lent, this season of repentance, is, is also a season of change. Like God is changing us. God is bringing yeah. us into the light. I mean, that's what the title is about. We are being transfigured too. That, you know, what happens on the mountain is Peter, James, and John are there. and they see Christ transfigured, but they don't know what to, to make of it. They see him in his glory. They have clarity about who he is, but they're not sure what to make of it. And that's when the cloud descends and they hear the voice in the cloud. This is my son. Listen to him. And then the cloud lifts and they see Jesus alone. And then they descend from the mountain right back into the maw of ministry. Yeah. And there's silence as they come down. In fact, the only word spoken on the way down from the mountain is don't tell anyone what you've seen. <laughs> and so there's this move towards silence and it, it it's a pregnant silence though, because they've seen the Lord and they know they don't know what it means. They know right. they don't know how to, that they have to listen to him now. They've seen the clarity of, but they don't know what that, what it means to see him in this way. They're not sure what to make of it. And that line about that I mentioned already, Peter saying, let us build three tabernacles. And then the writer observes he did not know what he was saying. It doesn't necessarily mean that his instinct was entirely wrong. He was trying to honor the moment. Yeah. But, but it's not what the moment needed because the three tabernacles were already there. Peter, James, and John were already there. And God was already doing that. Right, God right. was already making tabernacles, but now they have to become transfigured in the way that Christ is. They have to become transfigured with his transfiguration, transfigured in him. And that means they've got to walk the journey with him and they've got to suffer what he suffers. They've got to die his death with him. And I mean, that's the Christian call. But I mean, Peter, James and John live at first, along with Mary and and some of those other first disciples. But now we have to live it. And each of us in our generation have to live it. And I I hope that these sermons point to that, right? That the these these things hold true, whoever you are, whenever you are. Like that to follow Christ is is to be called to to have that kind of change worked in you. Right. I really love something, maybe you can reflect on it, that you you noted, you know, this this idea that the this small group, you know, they're coming down off the mountain. They're being told not to talk about it, that to keep silent about it. And and there's this almost a sense, almost a sense, and, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, but almost a sense of you've experienced this, but now you need to ruminate on the experience. Yeah. Before, like I, I think so very often when we have experiences, and this is coming from the Pentecostal in me, experiences with God our very first thing that we want to do is to try and give it meaning or try to actually explain it or try to, to talk about it. And it almost seems kind of in this season, both of Lent and this kind of moment of transfiguration, it's like, no, no, you don't need to talk about it. 
you can sit in it for a while and then listen to what is going to be said about it. And then we can talk about that experience after. Does that sound off to you or? No, I, I think that's right. I, I think there's a, there's a distinction to be made here between the kind of explanation that disbelief demands, right? So there's a kind of cynicism that demands an explanation and faith seeks understanding, but there's a kind of shallow experientialism that doesn't bother with understanding. It rushes right to just talking about its feelings. Yeah. And th this is there, there, this is one of the, the tragedies, one of the diseases, let me put it like that in our tribe, uh, the, our people suffer from is they don't seek understanding. They don't seek to understand what they're not discerning. We are not discerning. We, we talk too much and we talk too quickly to your point about what we think has happened. And so I, I do think faith seeks understanding, but that seeking may take a very long time. Yeah. And while it's seeking, it knows how to hold its tongue. Again, Peter, James, and John are told, don't talk about this. Don't talk about this. You need, you need to give it time to grow in you. You need to give right. yourself time to grow into it. And gosh, we're terrible at that. Like we are terrible at yeah. helping people seek understanding. We're and we're so quick to I mean, here, here's an example, testimony. I, I think one of the things that's precious about our tradition is testimony. But when testimony starts to go wrong, it's just people externalizing whatever they're feeling and thinking. <laughs> right, right. And, and there's a difference between testifying to what God has done and just externalizing whatever you're feeling or thinking at the time. And usually those are the testimonies that went really long, right? <laughs> That's exactly right. And, here, and one of my favorite examples of this is, is John Wesley's My Heart Was Strangely Warmed, right? So we all know that line, right? That he he goes to this Bible study and he has this experience, My Heart Was Strangely Warmed. But if you go and read the story, which I hope everyone will do, what actually happens is he, he's been to Mass already, to Evensong at the cathedral. He's an Anglican priest. So he goes from that to a Bible study after that amongst these, these uh, reform Lutheran pietists. And they're reading in German, they're reading Luther's commentary of the Romans. They're reading the preface in particular. So it's a commentary about the ways in which our faith is not what saves us. What saves us is grace alone, right? It's not our works and including not the work of faith, right. but grace alone that saves us. So Wesley's hearing this, and he's deeply moved, like deeply moved. My heart was strangely warmed. So he stands up to testify about it, he says, to tell them. And he says, while I was speaking, I began to doubt. Huh. The, the experience he had just had. Huh. Right? We never hear this story. But this no, exactly no, no, no. While I was speaking, I began to doubt. And all of these Moravian pietists gather around him and say, listen, you just heard what Luther said. It doesn't matter whether or not you feel doubt. God has acted. Like, whether your heart was strangely warmed or not, God has acted. Whether you have doubts in your heart now or not, God has acted. Trust that. Yeah. Trust trust this, this external word, this, this naked word of God. And so Wesley says, they, I calmed and rejoiced with them. And I went home and all night. The devil assaulted me. Huh. And 
And it, it, he says, I eventually get the victory by clinging to the external word of the gospel. Not his experience, but to this truth that it holds true that Jesus has acted on my behalf. I believe that whether I feel it or not, right? So right. that's just an illustration of right the ways in which experience and externalizing what you're feeling or thinking about the experience is not the same thing as transformation and testimony. Hmm. And we we we've done our our tribes have done a really poor job at helping people understand those differences. Yeah. So with your your homilies here then um because i'm you know i want to encourage everyone of course to go and, and buy them and and read them and kind of soak in them for a hot minute there's a good charismatic term right um not the hot minute part for anyone confused the soaking part right um but what what would you say you know for for those who have never engaged with lint in this kind of idea of being transfigured sitting in the shadow of death you know, what practices i suppose would you offer to say if you if you are going to do lent this year maybe try these things these these traditioned practices that can help you live in that without <laughs> The, the urge to, of course, go through the testimony of the experience of your feelings, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about giving up stuff for Lent. But I think if you're new to Lent, it's more important that you take stuff on. Hmm. Like, rather than trying to discipline yourself. I mean, if you want to give up chocolate, fine. I mean, but that's not, I don't think that's the way to learn the season. Right. I think the way to learn is go to Ash Wednesday service somewhere that they're going to mark you with the sign of the cross. And someone's going to tell you that you're mortal. Someone's going to, you know, the, the sermon there is going to remind you that you're going to die. Find a place to go. Go and and leave with the ashes on your head. And then during the, the, the season, every day, return to that. And, I mean, you can, you know, pray the morning and evening office in the Book of Common Prayer or find online prayer guide of your own i mean there are endless examples of this but I, I would i would give if i were trying to learn the season i would give myself to prayer every day around the themes of death and repentance and preparation and to think of it in terms of i'm getting ready for good friday like i yeah. i'm gonna be you know that that old spiritual were you there when they crucified my lord we are there every year, like every Good Friday, we are there. And it's, in another sense, we're always there. And we have to prepare for that. We have to get ourselves ready for it. And I think taking up some practices of prayer and practices of study toward that end will help immensely prepare, yeah. our, prepare our hearts for what, for what God is doing. The book is designed, there are seven sermons but I've marked off 40 separate sections in the book. They're marked off with a cross so that if somebody wanted to read just one section a day rather than a, a chapter at a time. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Take you through the 40 days, excluding yeah. Sundays of Lent, which technically are not part of Lent. Well, everyone needs to go get it. Who's interested, who wants to kind of learn a Lenten practice and think about this again it, i mean it's on amazon being transfigured linton homilies um so i would encourage everyone to do that 
this oddly speaking too quickly, not not allowing something. We're going to speak too quickly um, and transition here real quick for the last few minutes we have remaining to talk about something that is near and dear to Pentecostals, uh, revival. I say yeah. that even though Asbury is not Pentecostal per se, but just that, you know, for those of us in that kind of tribe, we hear that term and usually our ears prick up quite a bit. Oh, sure. But to talk about it, because there's been a lot of conversation. I, I mean, it, depending on your circles, clearly, but, you know, I can't not get onto social media and see like, it's been 72 hours. It's been 80 hours. Here's how many people, here's what's going on now. You know, there's the the scary bits of it. And there are some scary bits, things of, um, you know, I was in Lakeland at the time of the quote unquote Lakeland revival and uh, a, a certain gentleman who was a part of that lead, led it, whatever you want to call it. Now he's like, I'm heading to Asbury, right? And of course, this guy had some very strange things, you know, and massive moral failings. And now I'm headed to Asbury because, you know, that that old Pentecostal thing, right, where you think of Azusa Street and those who know the history of Azusa Street, you know, this revival is happening and pastors, predominantly white pastors come in to try and take over, over. right? Like, no, no, this is mine now. Now I'll lead this, right? And, and I, and all this stuff is swirling out there, you know, is it a revival or is it not right? If you're, if you're probably friends more with Pentecostal or charismatic, it's of course, this is a revival and this is amazing. If you're maybe in other mainline or reformed traditions, it's like, well, I don't know. Right. Like, no, this is, we're really skeptical. Chris, I'll just let you kind of reflect first. I mean, cause I've got my thoughts, but what are your reflections on, on something of this nature happening when we talk about it's, it's probably what been a little less than a week, but it's been kind of reported as a nonstop mm-hmm. all day and night gathering. You know, people are coming in transformation is happening. You know, it's, it is a nonstop student led experience uh, of God. When you first kind of come across those things, what, what rings true for you or, or what do you start to think about as you're trying to process something like this? Yeah, I I noticed a few things. I think what I noticed in myself is mostly gratitude. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful for them. For I mean, I, I have friends who were on faculty at Asbury. Yeah. And friends who were, who are alums, right? So I, my initial response was just, that's sweet. I mean, I, right. I, I didn't. I mean, I didn't go run to my car to drive to Wilmore, but I, <laughs> right. I didn't have any any kind of nothing disturbed me about it. Uh, my friend Jason Vickers wrote a really, I thought, insightful reflection on Facebook. He 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 lives there. He teaches at the seminary, and he had walked across the road and spent an hour hour and a half in the chapel. And this was several days ago. And I mean, what he said sounded like something sweet to me and right folks like howard snyder and greg keener yeah. are there as well and i mean i trust those guys i mean i think they're mm-hmm. they're not they're not hype machines they're not like the guy you're talking about from lakeland right right uh, i noticed that howard snyder mentioned that 
some vanfuls of Christian nationalists, and he he put it in quotes, and I'm putting it in quotes, but he said that some Christian nationalists had shown up, but were told that they couldn't display their paraphernalia. They could join for prayer if they would like, and they left. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that the place is going to get flooded in the next few days, if it's not already, with people with agenda. Right. Including... I'm glad I can't remember his name, but the the Joker, and that's I'm using that word very intentionally, the Joker from Lakeland, and yeah, I mean it's it's going to it's going to generate a lot of a lot of nonsense. My initial first response though is this is sweet. Now since then, I've also seen a lot of people who I love and I care for who are scarred by revivalism. Yeah. Right, like distancing themselves from it or reacting to it, and I, I, I have some sympathy for that. I understand. I mean, I've been in too many of those settings where people are being pressured and things are being called good that are not good, or things yeah. are being called miraculous that are not miraculous. I mean, I there's no need for me to reiterate all those stories, but there are lots of them. But I don't, I don't know what good. I think we have to acknowledge that's where we are, but I don't think we want to slide in any kind of cynicism or skepticism about it. Yeah. And right. not, that you're, not that you're advocating that. I think I, no. I just am cautioning against it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think it sounds precious to me and we'll see what kind of fruit it has long-term. I mean, even if it's nothing more than, an unbroken week of prayer and singing that's enough it doesn't have to be yeah. more. And i think the last thing i'll say about it until you provoke me to say more is i hate the feeling and it is being reported on and i think part of what makes it so hard to be christian in our circles is that everything is made into something right right i think sometimes it just needs to be what it is it doesn't need to be more yeah. Like there doesn't need to be the Asbury revival of 2023. I mean, it's fine if it's just a time of deep prayer. Yeah. Or that lasts for a week in an unbroken way or two weeks or whatever. It doesn't it doesn't have to be the thing that changes the world. Right. Right. It's not it's not the epiphany. It doesn't have to be, right? There has right. already been one of those. Yeah, exactly. I, I think in so many ways that's where I've been in reflecting upon it. In, in some ways, right? The excitement for those who are, are a part of this time and this experience of God and this manifest presence, because I have no reason to doubt that, right? I have no reason to doubt there is some nefarious, you know, trying to convince people all over the world that they're having this special moment, right? Um, no, it, it's very much, it's it's a special moment. Um, a theophanic experience right yeah i think actually where i get really sad is that we have social media and that we have we have these moments where people from the outside are trying to look in mm -hmm. and then that we have this kind of this moment where there are those people and it, the the todd bentley's i remember the name. Uh, yeah. i can't yeah. not know the name being in lakeland during that time yeah, fair enough um who who are you know revival hunters right like they just they want to bounce from place to place and yeah, whether it is term, yeah 
and whether ghost, it is they're ghost, they're ghost hunters yeah yeah and whether they are the the ones who want to go before maybe some nefarious i want to go and see how i can insert myself and now lead this and then you know promote you know my name again um or they want to go because they feel like that wherever they are in their moment with god they don't have it so they can go there and, and they'll find it and there's such a part of me that just kind of reflects on a moment like this at Asbury and go, this is for them in this moment. Mm. And if we talk about revival as being something that does back to this idea of transfiguration or being transformed, if it does transform the people, it will have effect outside of those walls and it should have effect outside of those walls. But there very much is a moment in a season where it's for them and their space and their moment mm. to be transformed to take that transformation into the world. But yeah. with social media, Facebook, this stuff, it immediately has to be, okay, well, what's, what's the outcome? Okay. What's happened? Okay. What's, you know, how are people being saved or all the questions that want to be asked instead of saying almost back to what we were talking about, let the moment happen and the experience happen and spend time, in the rumination of that, mm-hmm. and then be able to speak about it. Um, because you know, I if if I never went to the Lakeland revival, right? The the named Lakeland mm-hmm. revival. But I saw what it did to a lot of people in the city, particularly younger people in the city. And it wasn't great. To your point, a lot of scars, a lot of people who were very much turned off from the life of Christ because of this, and then even more so when all the morally nefarious stuff came out about Todd Bentley. Um, And it's actually scarred the city in some ways more than it has actually had a lasting impact. Um, And again, that's certain circles. I'm thinking of the, the younger generations that at that time that, you know, the college age kids that I was around um, as I was in college. So I think for me, whenever people have asked me to process, what do I think about this? revival i go i i'm I'm a little bit there with you chris it's wonderful it's sweet it's beautiful it's for them Mm. and this is that moment and we'll see what happens from it and i'm excited to see what happens from it but i also don't need to be the spiritual ghost hunter i don't need to spend my time debating on on it with people i don't need to i just i'm excited for them you know what i mean yeah i trust that i i I mean i don't I don't live there. I don't know those people. Well, I, I said, I have some friends who are there, but I trust that wherever a move like this is happening, that there are people, men and women wise enough to, to guide what comes next. Right. And I, right. I think most of the damage is going to, well, I shouldn't say most, cause I don't know, but like so much of the damage that happens around these kinds of events happens by people who are standing by. So like in this, in this, and I'm working on writing something right now about what it is that Jesus hears on the cross. You know, so we, we, we talk, people have been preaching sermons forever about what Jesus says from the cross. Hmm, yeah. Seven, the seven words from the cross. Right. But we don't talk often about what we, what he hears while he's dying and how he hears it Hmm. and so i've been thinking about that a lot and the first and the most dominant thing that he hears is mockery right as he's dying there are passers-by who mock him there are chief priests and elders and 
Pharisees who mock him, soldiers who mock him, the thieves mock him. So mostly what he hears is jeering and accusation. If you really are who you say you are, then do something about your state. But one of the things that like really stung me is realizing that there were also people who were standing by. So not only people who passed by and mocked him, but there are people who are just standing watching the whole thing play out. Hmm. And when he when he says, I'm thirsty, and when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, they hear, they're not sure what he's saying, and they wonder, oh, did he call for Elijah? Is that what he's doing? Right. And then it says they stood to see what would happen. And in some ways, I think this is the most wicked thing of all. Hmm. like to stand and watch what god is doing with that kind of like calloused curiosity yeah let's just see what happens and man that our technology has done this to us our own the works of our hands have worked us in that way but man so many of us that's what we are or at least that's what we're like anything we hear about you know from the news about politics or religion we immediately shift into that well let's see or i think he must be and we we, i mean that there's no way to live faithfully from that mode standing and so but it's also interesting to reflect in some sense in the fact that 30 years ago 40 years ago not that too long ago this would be happening in Asbury, and who would know? You wouldn't know about it. Yeah, that's exactly right. <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like yeah. we we live in such an age that that we have built up that callousy, the callousy, right? That callousness yeah. because we're so bombarded constantly with how many revivals have happened since the Lakeland one, or the Pensacola one, or the you know yep. name which Azusa, right? But but we we built up that callousness because we can sit back and just kind of judge it from afar and and have that same kind of attitude right whereas again even in Pensacola there's a lot of people who have no clue that that ever happened yeah right because it wasn't in the news they weren't it wasn't in their world so there's a part of me that also kind of ponders on what has that kind of social media done to us in this idea of revival when it has been such a, you know, it, when it is a localized event, when it's something for a moment for people. Yeah, and we I, have so many people in the world reflecting on something that they aren't a part of or haven't yeah, experienced. About. I mean, right? that's exactly. part of our problem is we, we've simultaneously kind of given people the impression that having an opinion is all the right you need to share it. <laughs> right. And and that right. you should have an opinion about everything that seems important to you. Hmm. And as many people as possible should have to listen to you share what you think is important. And I mean... Like, That's why we have the podcast. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> it's a... We're, we've got to be so much more modest. I mean, I... I think it's one thing for you and me to share with each other. Hey, this is what I'm thinking. It's another thing to 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 speak as if we have a right to be heard about what we think about mm. things that are not ours to speak about. Right. 
right? Like I think notice what's happening in this conversation. I mean, we're just acknowledging in half a dozen different ways. This is not really ours to speak about. Yeah. But what we can talk about is what those of us who really aren't there and don't know should be doing in response. Right. Right. And right. that seems right to me. I mean, I think there is a place for us to think about what do we do as people who are at a distance from all of this? How do we respond rightly? Because the what I know about it, I know because of social media. Right. And because of text messages from friends. Right. So that I think we need to have those conversations. But that's something very different from me jumping on Facebook and saying my thoughts on the Asbury Revival. Like nobody needs, literally no one needs my thoughts on Asbury Revival because I don't have any thoughts on that. Right. <laughs> I don't, it, 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 I can talk about how I've responded to the news that I've heard. We can do what we've just done for the last 10 or 15 minutes. I think that's all well and good, but man, we just, we need to be so much more comfortable knowing our limits, knowing yeah. that's not mine to talk about. That's not mine to handle. Yeah. It's such a, like you said, it's that modesty of, and maybe just our own, even humility to recognize our space in these conversations. Because I think to your point, the people who I have found frustration in, right? Because I'm, I'm friends with some of those same people, right? Those people who are, are uh, faculty members and the like in, in the area. And I'm very excited by what I see from them and, and glad that they are kind of there. But then I have those other, that other group who aren't there and who are giving their opinions, even if it's for good or for bad, I'm going, why, why are, why are you having to tell people you think it's real or not real that <laughs> like you've created the rubric for whether or not it's a true revival or not. Yeah. And you from afar are either judging it by that rubric already, or you are waiting to get the information that you want to get that fits neatly into your rubric. So you can give it the grade of, is it passing as a revival or not? And to me, that's where I, to your point, like that's where I find myself frustrated with both groups. Those who are cheering it on and saying, this is it, this must be it. And I'm going down there and I'm going to grab a ticket and I'm getting to Wilmore and we're going to, I'm going to be a part uh, and the same that is, you know, no, this isn't real. This can't be real. This is all hyped up emotionalism. And, you know, they're college students and they get emotional about things, yeah. which is true, but we all are emotional beings. So we all get emotional about things to some degree sure. and at some points. Right. So I think, I think to your point, yeah, that's, that's where it feels like we've, whatever the revival is, It is already being trying to be co-opted by well, people's sure. assumptions of it, right? And, what, and that's always going to be true for sure. And I think it's a, you know, for, for me, one one of the things that I I would like to cultivate in myself and in, in in my family and the people I have to care for is a sense that there is no scarcity for the work of God. So one of the things that bothers me most about revivalism is that it it uh, it plays up how bad every situation is hmm. so that it can right. give more meaning to what God is doing in this revival. Right. Like the thing that bothers me most about revivalism probably is is that is that sense of we're suggesting we're implying 
that God doesn't do very much, but now he's finally doing something here for these Yeah, right. right. And I, what I want to say is what's happening there, the best I can tell from all the people, many of whom I trust very much, it's wonderful and sweet. Thank God God is doing that. And God is doing things like that in your proximity too. Yeah. Maybe not at that scale, maybe with not that kind of social resonance, but absolutely God is doing that. And why, how can we attune ourselves to the miracles that are at hand, right? The ways in which the kingdom is present here. Like there's, there's a way in which it feels like a, a trick to me that we're all of our eyes are turning toward Asbury rather than recognizing right here, right now, like right in the, in this same house with me, there are people God is working in that I yeah. I should be seeing that and celebrating that. Yeah. I love, I love that. It, just to reflect on a little bit more, it's almost the sense that we are providing or, or not we, but you know what I'm saying? A, a larger group is, is saying, look at the quality of the work of God over there. Mm. And that revivalism says that if it truly is quality here, that thing would be happening here. Yeah, that's right. And all the while, us serving the needs of our neighbor by loving God and loving others mm-hmm. is there, there is no quality standard, right? Like there is no that is more qualified or better in the service of God than this because this has X, Y, and Z happening. And this is, well, you just took care of someone who needed some some food. Yeah. Right. And we act like this one is must be better than this one because look at everything else going on around it. And it's right? all the work of Jesus, right? I mean, that's right. the thing to recognize that that what Jesus is doing there with them is the good he's doing there with them. And I, I, it reminds me of that, you know, the passage at the end of the gospel of John where Jesus is speaking a word to John and people hear it as, or speaking a word to Peter about John, you know, it's none of your business. If it's my will that he live forever, that is nothing to you yeah and then they said because this there was a there was a belief that john the beloved would never die and that little that little detail is so important right that he's telling peter listen what i'm doing with john is none of your business right that's that's something else from what right right but also then immediately people pick up on what jesus says to peter about john and even that gets taken to, to something that was never intended and so, yeah, gosh, we modesty, humility, knowing our limits, staying within our bounds and and confident that what God is doing there, he is doing here in the way that he wants to do and the way that we need it done and the way that we're ready to receive it. And 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 to see that as not not something to, to grieve like that, that what we see there is not happening here. Instead, God opened my eyes to what is happening here again in my own house, yeah, in, in my church, right, amongst my friends around me in my in my neighborhood, in, in me. Uh, you know, there's that that famous wonderful line in Yaroslav Pelikan, which he says that traditionalism is the dead faith of the living, but tradition is the living faith of the dead. Hmm. Yeah, and I think we need a distinction like that between revival and revivalism. I don't have a clever phrasing worked out yet for it. Hopefully, I'll come to it. 
but essentially we need a distinction like that that revivalism is deadly it's it is yeah. a deadly thing because it it causes you to do what the prophets of Baal did, which is to try to bring about a move of God by mutilating yourself or mutilating other people. Right. Revivalism is a disease and it will, it does destroy people. Yeah. And and, and, revival is good, right? In the way that tradition is good, but traditionalism is not good. And I think we as a church have a really, again, we our church world, right? I think we've clarified that enough, but it's the same with scripture, right? When you think about the good of scripture, but then the evil of, of bibliolatry, yeah, right? Or biblicism, right? Where we're we're so quick that that the line between that is so fine for so many of us that we don't recognize where we have fallen into biblicism or bibliolatry versus, you know, a good healthy relationship with this written down word of God. Um same with revival. I love that, right? Revival, revivalism. You know, I, I, something you said there, and, and we probably don't have time to reflect. It's already been over time and probably need to let you go. But, you know, I, an experience that I had in, in, in college where we had this kind of beautiful, sweet moment of a group of about 10 of us uh, in, in a dorm room, nonetheless, just spending time worshiping. And there was a real kind of movement of God amongst us and and it was wonderful and and kind of that you know exuberance started to kind of well up right and i remember someone going let's take this outside and let's like go you know bring this to everyone else and and of course me being me i was like ooh i don't want to do that like i've really enjoyed this space but that's not something for me no. and sure enough as soon as it got outside it was like it was it was gone it was almost this kind of like, sometimes we fail, I think, to think about these moments in which we are being transformed. And that transformation in us is going to be taken outward, but that doesn't mean the exuberance or the quote unquote revivalism is the thing that's supposed to go outward. It's the transformed us who have been transformed by God and taking that gospel out to the people. Yeah, right? and, and, and maybe there's a going out that's years away. Like maybe what needed to happen in that night in that room was thank you, God, for this. Yeah, right. And then five years from now, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, the seed that was planted in you in that moment grows up into something that you can share with everybody else. We move so, I mean, I was just in convocation with our bishop, Bishop Ed, and he, at the very, the la very last thing he said to all of us who were there is, as sweet as this moment has been and all of the good things you've seen here, don't rush out to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what I mean, he's talking about. this is back to the full circle of the podcast, right? And this mount of trend, you know, the, the transfiguration narrative, right? Like there is a need for us to sit with these things and know the timing, know when God is calling this back out of us, what he's given to us in these moments, versus us wanting to make the monuments and statues to the moment immediately. And we're really bad at that as people, I think, in the sense that we love to have, we love the meaning. We want to know the meaning of the event as soon as the event has happened, mm -hmm. right? What does this mean for me? Instead of being able to say, I can sit in this event for a time and learn and process that meaning, which to your point may take years, yeah. right? And then some fruit may come out of that. It, it's as if we act, if God is doing it in us, it has to immediately 
we have to know where it fits in the all time, right. you know, in the whole scheme of what God has done in the world. One, one more note I want to make before we go. You and I both have spent a lot of our lives in the academy, you know, doing, as I said, doing work that our churches didn't have time for anymore. I mean, I, right. I would say the last 10 to 15 years of my life as a professor has been overwhelmingly giving to do given to doing the work that pastors used to do. Hmm. Yeah. Like my right. students are not pastored. Like I, I, I mean, I, it is very rare for me to have a student that is discipled and pastored by a home church. Like they, right. they attend, but what right. they get is an experience on Sunday morning. They do not get pastored. They do not get discipled. Right. And so we, you and I, folks like you and me, we end up doing that work that used to be done by the local church, by Sunday school teachers and pastors and priests, you know, in generations past. But one thing that has been true about revival history is that revival very often breaks out in college settings, Bible school. And, and this is true, like Duquesne and the Catholic charismatic renewal. It's true about Asbury in the seventies. It's true. Now they're, Lots and lots and lots of examples of this. And one of the things that I think is ironic is that revivalist traditions tend to be anti-academic and anti-scholarly. Yeah. Even though, though their own history is only possible because of renewal movements that begin in Bible schools. Right. Like the whole Pentecostal, yeah. like so much of the Pentecostal movement begins in Charles Parham's Bible school. Right. And they, I could give endless examples here, right? And and that, there's something deeply ironic to me about that, deeply disturbing about that. That, and and this is, I think, points to the disease of revivalism. That because we do not know how to be grateful for what God has done and how God has done it, we don't even take time to notice that these outbreaks that we are always talking about how we want, they most often happen in places we don't think God is acting at all. Hmm, right those professors that you're so worried about not really being filled with the spirit well history shows those are the people most likely to have students who are able to give themselves to this kind of prayer so that these kinds of movements become possible right right the failed adage of seminary equals cemetery historically Actually. opposite is true right, right? like right opposite right i'm not i mean Anything but that is true, right? And it's, I mean, there's, it's not to say that there aren't ways in which there are some seminaries that have taught things that are life, that lifeless or damaging. But I mean, there are a lot more local churches doing that. Right. And, and, and we don't, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, uh, reflecting on my own experience and in, in my undergrad years, never was there a moment that I can ever remember the chapel, right? At actual, it was Monday, no, sorry, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I think at 9am you had to be in chapel, right? And if you didn't, you were fined because good Christians have to be fined if they don't go to chapel. Um, never was there ever a quote unquote revival in those pre-prescribed places of worship. But there were so many times that things happened in the dorm, not in those classrooms, in yeah. the dorms or in the classrooms that would spill 
over into other places. Yeah. Right. Um, but it was never in the traditional space, mm. which was, which to me was just interesting. Um, but Chris, or should I say father green? <laughs> um, I appreciate you taking the time, yeah, the curveball. you know, I, I hope that this is helpful for those who want to reflect on Lent, um, and who want to reflect on the reflections, maybe to put it of the Asbury, uh, revival or, or just the, the, the sweet moment for them, whatever. I don't want to call it anything. Whatever we right? name it, yeah. 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 I think last thing, maybe what we should give up for Lent is just having opinions about things that aren't ours. <laughs> wow. I mean, if we did that, I mean, I think Facebook and Twitter would see, you know, an actual drastic reduction of <laughs> yeah, the business models of social media companies are built on people will not on, on the assumption that people will not be able not to share their opinion. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Yeah. That would be a fun social experience uh, experiment. If we could have the, the church universal give up Facebook <laughs> for a lens. What yeah, a you know, Harwas, Harwas's, he said he had one of his goals was to convince all Christians not to kill other Christians in any way, you know, in any war, right. This as a pacifist, he said, you know, yeah. I want to begin with this. No Christians should not kill other Christians. That That's not a stopping point. That's a starting point. I, I, I want to join him and say, Christians should not share opinions that are not theirs to share about other Christians. Mm. That's a start. In, in some ways killing them. Yeah. Whether it's reputation Absolutely. You know, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's really, I mean, if, if people start to think about that phrase, Christians stop killing Christians um, in terms of war, things become really complicated for quote unquote, just war. That's right. Exactly right. Uh, very complicated. Chris, thanks so much, man. And, you know, I'm sure it won't be long until, until you'll be back. I hope not. Good to see you, brother. Talk to you yeah. soon. Talk to you soon. Thanks for